Well, thank you for uh, paying attention to the Bible reading this morning. We're back in the book of Luke, chapter number 16. Luke, chapter 16. I'll read uh, just one verse out, shall I, since we've read over them all this morning. Luke, chapter 16. The most familiar verse, verse number 13. Why don't we read it aloud together, shall we? Luke chapter 16, verse number 13. One, two. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and man. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we open up the precious word of God, Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may he lead us into truth that will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be challenged by that which we already know and that which will be revealed. Father, we pray more than ever, Lord, that your people will do the work that you have called us to do wherever you desire us to be until you come. Father, I pray that if there is anyone present here this morning that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as their own Savior, that this may be the day of their salvation. Father, we know that you know our hearts. Lord, help us to respond to your word quickly, willingly, and with a passion and a love for thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as a young man preparing to go to China, Hudson Taylor determined to live by faith alone while he was still in England. Now, that was a good decision. He thought to himself, well, if I'm going to go as a missionary somewhere one day, I better start living by faith right now. And so, as he worked for a doctor at that time, uh, he did have to live by faith. He only got paid every four months. Now, how many of you like me would be excited when those four months were up and you finally got paid? Well, as you may have guessed it, there was a time when Hudson was about to receive his salary and he was worried that his employer had forgotten about it, and in fact he did. But determined to keep his resolve, he decided to say nothing about it. Well, Taylor only had one half-crown piece to his name, and he decided, okay, I won't break my resolution, I'll trust God, and so he was certainly living by faith. While visiting a needy home on the Lord's Day, Taylor felt led of God to give his last coin to a needy family. The next day, he received an anonymous gift through the mail, four times what he had given to the poor. And that's certainly how God works, does he not? We trust him by faith. He tests our faith. And then he teaches us he is dependable. Now, the following Saturday, the doctor finished up his work and said, Taylor, is not your salary due again? Taylor told him that he'd become disappointed. Uh, Taylor said that it was due again. But he became disappointed when he found out 
that his boss had already banked that week's wages and he didn't have it once again. Well, he was trusting the Lord. That evening, the doctor visited him and said that one of his richest patients had come over after hours to pay the bill and he gave the money in full to Taylor, who rejoiced. And I share that little testimony uh, that you can read in the biography of Hudson Taylor, uh, that uh, he was a man, a young man, who learned to trust God. He learned to trust God in the least, with his money, with what God had given to him, and therefore God could trust him as a missionary to go to China. Look with me in verse 13, excuse me, look with me in verse 10. The Bible says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? The title of this morning's message is Investing in Eternity. Probably verse 13 is the most familiar to us, isn't it? And there are a number of curious statements in this parable, which by God's grace, we will attempt to uncover a little bit and allow the Spirit of God to continue that. We're going to look at three things this morning. Okay, so please stay with me. Three things, the contrast in the parable, the command, and then the challenge from the parable. So notice, first of all, that there is a contrast that the Lord Jesus Christ brings forth in this parable. Well, remember, a parable is a made-up story. It's not a true account of an event that took place. It's a story that the Lord made up to illustrate an important spiritual truth. And this story is about a steward. Now, a steward, as you know, is someone who's responsible for taking care of their master's goods for them. And a steward was more than just an employee like we have bosses and employees today. Well, stewards in that day in Bible times, well, they got, a, they got to enjoy the benefits of their master's wealth. Oftentimes they were given accommodation to live in. They were given money to, to, to live from. And they were also uh, uh, given uh, generously for their services. Now the modern version of today could be a business manager. Uh, and his job was to manage the funds of his master. That's what a steward was. Well, as we continue in the parable, we find out that the steward had a problem, didn't he? Why is that? Well, verse 1, And there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't tell us what he did wrong, but obviously he did something wrong. Maybe somewhere along the line, he forgot that he was a steward and he did what he wanted with his master's money. Verse number two, he was challenged. How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So his boss said, show me the books. And when the books were opened, he was about to lose his job. But don't get distracted as to why he was about to lose his job. Because the Lord Jesus focuses on what he did next. Notice the steward's plan. Verses 3 and 4. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. Now, do you think that was really true? 
just pick up a shovel, we would say. Well, maybe he was a bit lazy. I cannot dig. To beg, I am ashamed. Well, do you think that was true? Well, he would have been ashamed. Maybe he was a bit proud to ask for help. Okay, he, he, he was proud. He was lazy, perhaps. But he did come up with a plan. I am resolved what to do. Notice this. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they, interesting statement, may receive me into their houses. So the steward came up with a plan, knowing that he was going to lose his job, which meant where he was living and all his finances. He had to quickly come up with an idea of what to do. So he put his plan into action. Stay with me. He came up with a very ingenious idea. Verses 6 and 7 tells us that he visited each of those who owed his master money, the debtors. And he gave them a generous discount on what they owed. Verse 5. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. How much discount did he get? Yeah, fifty percent off. Imagine if you were in debt or perhaps you're paying back a loan on your home. And imagine someone offering you a 50% discount on that loan if you'll pay up now. That would be a very attractive offer, wouldn't it? Halving your debt instantaneously. And, uh, and I spoke to a pastor when we were discussing these verses. And he, in fact, uh, in his former life was a debt collector. I won't tell you who, is he, who he is. <laughs> And he told me that debt collectors today still do the same thing. When someone is so far in debt that there's no way that they can pay off that debt, instead of trying to get more interest out of them and the master or the boss or, or the company never being able to re recover that debt, they'll offer them a huge discount if they pay up now. And uh, many times at least they get something rather than nothing. And so this is what this steward did. He used the info he had at his hands. He used his, his wits, his financial skills. He went out there. And what did he do? Don't miss it. He made some brand new business friends. How thankful would they have been to this steward for cutting them such a great discount? What for? Well, as he said, when he would be put out of his stewardship, these new business friends would receive him into their houses. No doubt they would be keen to employ a steward like this and their new friend. Well, it was a very cunning plan, very ingenious plan. Notice verse number eight. Here is uh, probably the first curious statement that we often read over. I know that I have and thought to myself, what does that mean? Verse number eight. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, the important thing to note is when the Bible mentions the word Lord in verse eight, who is it referring to? Well, it's still the parable, remember? The Lord Jesus is still teaching the parable. It's not the Lord Jesus speaking here. It's the Lord, the master, the boss, 
the employer of the steward. And that's where I often got confused. It is the boss that made this statement. And why did he make this statement? Well, I'll tell you why. He stood back knowing his steward was a crook, but then he said to himself, well, I know he's a crook, but he's a clever one. And even Aussies say that today, don't they? Sadly, many crooks in Australian history are lifted up as legends and heroes for getting away with what they've done. And this was the mentality of the master. Well, he's a, he's a crook, but he's a clever one. He set himself up for the future. Even though I'm going to get rid of him, he's got somewhere to go. Please be careful to note that the Lord Jesus wasn't approving of his dishonest tactics. He wasn't approving of that. This is part of the parable. He had set himself up for the future. Now, here is the contrast in the parable. Stay with me. Verse, verse number eight. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. In this story, the steward was a child of this world. He was not a believer. Who in the scriptures are described as the children of light? Let's have a look there together. Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you know the answer, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. Let's look at it together. Thank you for turning there. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 8. Let's read this verse aloud together, shall we? One, two. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So who are described in the Bible as children of light? Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians. What a wonderful description of a sinner who has come to Christ as their savior, a child of light. And my friends, the Bible tells us that you and I are all condemned sinners before a holy God. We are all sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is holy. He is light. In him is no darkness at all. The Bible says God is pure. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He is righteous. And because we are sinners before a holy God, God must punish us for our sins. Why? Because a holy God is a God of justice. We cannot just get away with what we do in life. We are in big trouble. For the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that's the judgment we deserve. God's justice is holy. And then the Bible tells us in the last book of the Bible, the book of things to come, what is the just payment you and I deserve for our sins? And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And whosoever was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's what you and I deserve as sinners. Some would say, why is hell so bad? Well, the Bible tells us why. Because our sins are so bad. If we would see the darkness and the depravity 
and the wickedness of our sins in the light of a holy God, you and I would be compelled to admit that is what we fully deserve. That's the bad news. But thankfully, there is good news. God is a God of justice, but God is a God of infinite mercy, as we heard this morning, of infinite love. And thank God, light came into this world in the face of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And God the Son went to the cross, and there, with his precious, sinless blood, he paid for your sins and mine. And then he rose again from the dead. What did that mean? That means that the wrath, the holy justice of God against your sins and mine were satisfied once and for all by the precious blood payment of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I as wicked sinners can be forgiven by turning in repentance from our sin and turning by faith to Christ and receiving him as our personal savior. The debt has been paid. Amen. Your crimes have been dealt with at the cross. And we simply need to call upon him by faith and be forgiven forever. And the Bible describes the one who has put their faith in Christ as a child of light. Amen. A child of light. The Bible says in the New Testament, we are taken uh, uh, from the kingdom of darkness. The way we once were changed nature and placed into the kingdom of his dear son. What wonderful truths to rejoice in this morning. Thank God for the supernatural salvation he has offered and given us. Thank God for the transaction that's been made. His precious blood for our sins. Do you realize that the only good thing that you can offer God is your bag load of filthy sins? And he gives you the very gift of eternal life and the very nature of God living within. Question this morning. Are you a child of light? Or are you a child of darkness? Many religious people pray a prayer. Many people don't want to go to hell. But the question is, are you a child of light today? Hey, look, everyone is looking for a heaven today. Isn't that right? Wherever it is, it might be around the corner. It might be a retirement plan. It might be a holiday. Everyone's looking for a heaven. Everyone wants to go to a heaven when they die, but not everyone wants God to be there. Again, have you seen yourself as a condemned sinner before a holy God? Have you trusted in Christ as your savior? If you have, there is going to be a change. Amen. Because you have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and you've been placed into his marvelous light and you will desire and want to, though not always doing so, you will desire to walk as a child of light. You see, John tells us in the book of First John that if you are a Christian, you will not gladly walk in darkness. You will not joyfully continue in sin. Though at times you will. And it will grieve you. 
Are you a child of light? If you are disturbed this morning and all you have to cling to is a prayer that you prayed once upon a time, perhaps you need to ask the hard question. Maybe that's all it was. Maybe I've got a prayer, but I don't have the Savior. Maybe I've got a date written down somewhere, but I don't have Jesus Christ in my life. That's a terrible tragedy among many churches today. My friend, if that's you this morning and you're disturbed, may I encourage you to speak to someone today. Amen. Allow the Lord to take care of your sins once and for all by coming to Christ this morning. Speak to pastor. Speak to someone that brought you. But don't leave here this morning wondering whether today you will plummet to the depths of eternal despair and eternal torment in hell. Life is short. If you are a Christian this morning, the Bible says that you are a child of light. What a wonderful truth to rejoice in. Back to the scriptures. Luke chapter 16. Why would this boss make such a perplexing statement? Verse number eight. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, I can imagine the disciples whom the Lord Jesus was speaking to, as we see in verse one, I can imagine them suddenly snapping to attention and Peter probably thinking to himself, what is he talking about? How can that be true? How can this ratty steward who came up with a crafty plan in his worldly wisdom be wiser than the children of light? Well, that's what this that's what the boss of this steward said. Why did the Lord Jesus include this in the parable? Well, I believe sadly, so often, it is true. You see, many times, those in this generation who have no eternal hope for the future, who are not Christians, and let's see if you agree with me, so many of them have more passion have more commitment, have more zeal, and have more worldly wisdom for what they desire, for what they want to achieve in their lives, for their plans, for their future in this generation, than the child of God has for the plan of God, for the will of God, investing in eternity. So often the world puts us to shame because they stand back and say they are meant to be Christians. But look how much enthusiasm they have for what they believe in. Look how much commitment they have for what they believe in. Folks, sadly, so often it's true. But let me say, let it not be said of Lavington Baptist Church. Amen. Let it not be said that the world has more passion for what they love than for what you love and cherish in the life with God. Amen. Here's a humbling example. Think about a circus performer for a moment. Many young children go into performance acts as a, as a, at a young age 
and uh, many of their parents uh, deliver them to circus troops to, to, uh, to practice their desire craft. They practice day in and day out from a child. Many of them travel with that entertainment group uh, for many years of their lives. As they grow up, they practice each and every day. Though they fall, they get back up again. Think of a trapeze artist. How many times do you need to fall before you become an expert? Well, many times, heaps of times, but they get back up. They keep practicing. Those setbacks are faced, though loneliness is experienced, though failures are endured, soon enough, they perfect their craft and they reach their chosen goal and they delight in the rewards of their own achievements. Now, how many Christians could be described like that this morning? Who the moment we're born again, put every effort, desire, passion into the calling and work of God. Well, I dare say many of us this morning would be put to shame by the average circus performer. Because we have less zeal, less commitment, less obedience to the word of God than the world has to their own desires. That's why the boss made this tragic statement. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Christian, do you have a passion for God? Do you have a vision of what God desires for your life? I hope you do. I hope you do have a vision. I hope there is a want to within you. Look, if you are a child of light, the Holy Spirit should be crying out this morning, I want more of my Savior. Amen? I want to know him more. I want to live for him more. If that's your desire, can I encourage you to continue listening? Well, we've seen the contrast in the parable. Notice next the command of the parable. This is where, in verse number 8, the parable ends. And the Lord Jesus then takes what he taught in this illustration and applies it to the lives of his disciples. He basically says, this is what I want you to do with this lesson. And it's not on being a faithful steward necessarily. The focus isn't how the steward lost his job. The focus was on the passion and the plan and the initiative the steward had. Notice what the Lord Jesus says. You can imagine him turning to his disciples in verse 9. And I say unto you, the parable is over, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. One of the most difficult to understand verses in the Bible. Something that I've often passed over and thought, well, I'll get it one day. And then I had to teach a series on the parables up, up north in Queensland. And I thought, oh, no, now I'm going to have to study it out. And uh, Lord, help me. Uh, and obviously, we're not plumbing the depths of the scriptures this morning. Uh, but the reality is, um, this is one of the most encouraging verses in the scriptures when it comes to serving God. What have we learned? The steward was about to lose his job. Is that right? Okay, speak to me. Say with me. He came up with an ingenious plan that set himself up for the future in his generation. 
And that's what the Lord takes and says to his disciples, this is what I want you to do. If you're going to make sure that the children of this world are not wiser in their generation than you, this is what I want you to do. Are you listening? Go make to yourselves friends. I want you to go and make some friends too. The steward did that. I want you to do that as well. How? The Bible says, of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now look up here this morning. How many of you agree the Lord Jesus wasn't saying, I want you to make money your friend? All right, put your hand up. Oh, no one put their hand up. (laughs) Well, the Lord Jesus wasn't saying, I want you to be friends of money. I want your money. I want money to be your friend. Go make friends of money. That's not what he was saying. We know that because notice how it's described. The mammon of unrighteousness. That is not a positive statement. Later in the pastoral epistles, how does the Lord describe money? Filthy lucre. Isn't that right? Why does the Lord use these negative descriptions? Well, very simply, because he doesn't want us to love it. Amen. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. Hey, God gives it to us. But here's the point. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to make friends with by means of use money to make friends. Use what I have given you to go and make some friends. You see, that's what the worldly steward did. He pulled his resources, his his intellect, his financial know-how, his worldly wisdom, all that he had to make friends, to set himself up for the future. And the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to go and make some friends. I want you to use what you have to do that. Well, what kind of friends? Good question. Have a look in verse number nine. That when ye fail... Now, underline the word fail in your Bibles. It doesn't mean the Lord Jesus is going to fire you and I as Christians. The word fail means to cease, to die, to end. You and I are stewards in God's service. When does our stewardship end? Well, one way it ends when we... Or the other way, amen, in the twinkling of an eye. Praise God. That's when our stewardship will end. It will come to an end. And the Bible uses the word fail to describe that. To describe that end point, that ceasing. So that when our stewardship is over, notice the end of verse 9, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Did you get that? The Lord is saying to his disciples, I want you to have more passion for the work of God than the average lost person has for their own stuff. I want you to make friends, use every resource I've given you, and you you need to go out there and make some friends. What kind of friends? Well, the ones that when your stewardship are over, will receive you into everlasting Habitations. That is unbelievable. I'll come back in a moment to that. What kind of friends are they? Well, obviously, friends of the gospel. Amen. 
those you witness to, though you may not be the one to lead them to Christ, ultimately by your friend making, witnessing, preaching the gospel to them, they become Christians, they're saved, and one day you will meet them when you get to heaven in those everlasting habitations. That is what life is worth living for. These are the investments, church family, worth making. Isn't that a wonderful summary of the Great Commission? Church family, go and make some friends. Amen? Of the gospel. Friends to witness to. They're all around us. How can we do that? Well, let me encourage you this morning to invest in eternity. This is what the Lord was saying to his disciples. Forget about the mammon. Use it to make some friends. How can we do that? Well, let me encourage you to be a part of God's plan for your life. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The only institution that the Lord Jesus is building today is the local New Testament church. Excuse me. So often we invest everything we have in other institutions, in other passions, in other pursuits. Nothing wrong with having a hobby. The Lord gives us talents. He gives us skills. But he also gives us spiritual gifts that will take and harness those talents and use them for what? For the work of God within the boundaries of the local New Testament church. There is no such thing as a backpacking Christian in the Bible. It's not a Christian that obeys God, that floats from church to church, unless they're on deputation, so I've got the excuse. <laughs> Better slip that in there before I get in trouble. God has a plan for your life. You can say amen. And it involves being a member of a local New Testament church. And that's where he wants to plant you. That's where he wants to grow you. And that's where he wants you to make friends with that church family, going out into the community of this area in Albury-Wodonga, preaching the gospel and making friends of the Lord so that one day you will meet them in eternity. Isn't that worth the sacrifice? Look, if soul winning is on Saturday, brother, sister, you need to be there. If it means taking a day off work, well then think about this parable. Where are you investing your time? You see, to every commitment for God, there is a cost. Don't miss it. The Lord isn't saying just go and make some friends, though it costs you nothing. No, make to yourselves friends. How? Of the mammon of unrighteousness. The Lord was warning his disciples, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to invest. You're going to have to use your energies, times, your wit and, and your knowledge and, and your and the gifts that I've given you to do the work of God. We all have to work. Absolutely. But what is your priority? Amen. Are you working to live or are you living for work? Which one is it? The wrong way will steal away that time. Christian, do you have a dream? A vision? A passion for God? To win souls to Christ? Or is your passion at the moment invested elsewhere? You know, our passions waver, don't they? So often we're so unstable, double-minded, 
God wants us to be single-minded this morning. What is that one responsibility, as Brother Chris Crockett may have shared with you this year? What is that one responsibility God has given us? To go and make friends of the gospel. Amen? That's the work he's called us to do. Are we doing that? Are you doing that through the local New Testament church? You know, maybe it, it, what it will take is some commitment to that outreach day. Being here at church when the doors are open, because this is where you learn how to be a witness, is it not? Friends, this is just ABC Christianity. If you're not in church and if you don't come to outreach, well, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss God's plan for your life. You're going to miss those opportunities to go out together, and that's how it should be, to make some friends. Maybe we need to be reminded about the opportunities that are all around us. Do you know your next door neighbor? Now, maybe they're hard to make friends with. Uh, that's the reality. God knows that. But you can be friendly. Amen? You can be friendly. You can say good day. You can go across with a, a plate of cookies. Get to know them. For what, for what reason? Well, for this reason. Amen? What the Lord Jesus is talking about. Making friends of the gospel. Looking for that open door. Looking for that next witnessing opportunity. Look, and if the door slams in your face, go to the next door. Amen. Go to the next person. Go to the next workmate. Go to the next friend. Go to the, ne the next old schoolmate you had. Uh, go to the next relative. I mean, you have unlimited opportunities if you open your eyes to what God wants us to see this morning. Making friends of the gospel once again it's going to cost you something you invite someone over for tea well it's going to cost you the meal it's going to cost you time it's going to cost you virtue and energy and this is exactly what the lord is saying how often it is that the world has more energy and more passion and more vision for their devilish selfish desires than we have one ounce for the work of the lord jesus christ we ought to be put to shame we ought to be embarrassed we ought to be even put to shame by the world, as this boss in the parable said. When unsaved people look at your life, what do they see? That's a rebuke to me. What do they see? Well, we invest in eternity through soul winning, don't we? We invest in eternity through supporting missions, through being involved in Worldwide evangelism. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 4. We won't turn there this morning. But he said this. Not because I desire a gift. But I desire. Listen carefully. Fruit that may abound to your account. See those that supported the apostle Paul. Couldn't go where Paul was called to go. They couldn't do what Paul had been called to do. God had given him an important, specific ministry, and they had their own ministry in Philippi where they were, and they needed to stay put. But Paul challenged them and encouraged them that, listen, as you give to me, you are in fact doing what? What's the title of the message? Investing in eternity. He said, I don't desire your gifts. I desire something much more than that, that fruit will abound for your account. 
You see, every time Paul led souls to Christ, as this faithful church gave and prayed for them, these were eternal friends that Paul made through this local church. These were friends of these new friends. And one day, the church in Philippi would meet these friends in eternal, everlasting habitations. Let me apply that this morning. Imagine the missionaries you're supporting right now. Think of them for a moment. Think of one of their recent requests for someone they've asked you to pray for. Imagine you're faithfully praying for them. You're financially giving to them. You're a part of their work from afar, but you're just as much a part of their work as if you were there. Though the people you are praying for you've never met, though they're just photos of people on a prayer letter, names on a list, and then you hear in time to come, That Savesh got saved. He received Christ as his saviour. And then after your life's work is done and your stewardship is over, one day you step into eternity. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the Bible says in verse 9 that they may receive you into everlasting habitations. One day, those souls will be there. And do you know what they're going to say? Because I know that that's what I would say. Thank you for sending a missionary. Thank you for praying for my salvation. Thank you for sacrificing for the cause of world missions so that I could hear the gospel and accept the gift of eternal life and brought out of the darkness of my pagan heathenism and know Christ as my saviour. Thank you. My friend, for what you've done, for what you've been a part of. Now, church family, isn't that worth it all? Listen, the only riches that you and I are going to have in, in eternity are eternal souls. It's not money. Amen. Anything the Lord gives us, such as crowns, we know we'll cast them back at his feet. You're not going to topple over because you've got to stack of them on top of your head. I hope you've worked that out by now. No, the only thing that you can take into eternity is another soul. Amen? And how do we do that? Well, through missions. As a young Christian, I was excited by this wonderful truth that though I can't go to that country, I can give and I can pray. And that is fruit that will bound to my account. What a wonderful reminder this morning of what we are indeed investing in. Eternal souls that we will meet in everlasting habitations. Now, doesn't that excite you to pray more this morning? Doesn't that excite you uh, to be more involved in worldwide missions? Doesn't it excite you to go soul winning? Well, it ought to, if you're a child of light. If you have the light of God in you, you ought to be excited. You ought to have a passion. The Bible says we are to go and make to ourselves friends. We can pray and we can give, but we can also go ourselves. Amen. We can also go. My wife and I are so excited to take our family back to Mauritius. 
You might say, well, what are you going to do there? Well, we're just going to go and make some more friends. Amen. And we're going to go back to the friends we made and continue making friends of the gospel. Continue witnessing. Continue preaching Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Continue opening the Bible and showing uh, people that there is only one true living God. And he has proven that he is God because God was manifest in the flesh. No other religion has any other savior who showed themselves forth, who proved that they are God in the visible flesh. None do. No Hindu God ever came to earth and displayed their righteousness and dwelt among us. Amen. As the only begotten of the Father. They need to know that. And so we go back to make some friends. But church family, those friends are all around you. They're not friends of the gospel yet. But these investments are going to cost you something. Count the cost this morning. We are stewards for God and hold loose, please, to what you have. If you are a stingy Christian, and I know how that feels. We've all gone through those seasons of stinginess. Missions month comes around and we think to ourselves, oh no, I've already, I gave more last year than I've ever given. What am I going to do this year? Finances have gone down. In fact, things are not as, I'm not doing as well as I was last year. Things are hard. I guess I'm going to have to cut back. Have you gone through seasons of life like that? Well, Hudson Taylor went through seasons like that, didn't he? And he said, I'm just going to trust God. Perchance that God is testing my faith. It's always going to cost us something. But the rewards are eternal. And the investment is when? Now. The investment is now. What you invest in now will result in eternal rewards. What we waste our money on now will result in eternal loss. That is the Christian reality. Well, the command is very clear. In verse number eight, lastly, the challenge, and I'll close with this. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 to 13. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? God simply says, if you are not faithful in the small things, you will not be faithful in the greater things. Well, what is the small things? What are the small things? What is the least that we can do? I remember as a young Christian thinking to, thinking to myself, well, if I give my tithe and I give, give as much as I think I, uh, the Lord wants me to give at missions time, I must be some kind of spiritual giant. I'm smack bang in the will of God. I'm doing well. And then as the years went by, I realized that that in fact is not true. And here's the challenge of the parable. What is the least the Lord Jesus is describing? He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also much. What is the least? Verse 11. 
Here's the least on this side of the pulpit. For the sake of illustration. Verse 11. If therefore you have not been faithful in the, say it, unrighteous man. Do you realize that the Lord Jesus is saying that the least that you and I can do as Christians is to be faithful with the money he's given us. With the resources he's given us. That's the least that the Lord Jesus expects. If that's the most that you and I do, then we're in big trouble. If we think we're doing God a favor, then we're in very big trouble. The Lord is saying that is the least that you can do. To invest your time and your energies and, and, and your resources into the work of God. That's the least that he expects. Why is the Lord so possessive and so zealous over our lives? Why? Because he has bought us with a price. Amen. With his precious blood. And God has placed his own nature within you. He's not going to get let you and I go with a worldly life and enjoy it if we are children of light. But it's sadly possible for you and I to do the least. And thinking we're doing the most. The Lord says... If you are faithful in that which is least, you'll be faithful also in much. If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Understand also, if we are faithful in what God has given us, there are riches of another kind that will be given to the faithful Christian. Amen? If we are faithful in that which is least, God will entrust us with that which is must. These are the true riches in the Christian life. And it is not money. It is not gold. It is not silver. Hudson Taylor was faithful in that which is least. And God said to Hudson Taylor, Hudson, I'm going to send you to China. I'm going to work through you and use you to lead countless souls to Christ. And generations afterwards will invest in that same work. And souls will be saved. The true riches of the Christian life is not money. Not the things the world can give us. It's the things the world cannot take away from us. Amen. The true riches in the Christian life are the friends we've made of the gospel. God using you and I to lead souls to Christ. When we allow God to, 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 to break those, those shackles of worldliness. Amen. Those cords of sin. That we've allowed ourselves to become bound in so often as Christians. When we allow God to break them through his reviving work, then he can set us loose to be effective in the service of God. Then we'll be faithful in much. Then we can be used of God. Let me challenge you this morning, church family, to desire the true riches. The true riches. Notice verse number 12. If you're not being faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? The least is the mammon, the money, the finances. That's the least. You know what the Lord says? It's not your own. It's another man's. It's his. We are stewards. We've been given what we've been given to use for the glory of God. 
But if we've been faithful in that which is least, what does, it, what does the Bible say? He will give you that which is your own. Now we are talking clearly about the eternal rewards, the everlasting rewards. Amen. A crown that fadeth not away. You and I cannot possibly imagine the rewards that await the Christian who is faithful in heaven. There's no way I can describe to you exactly what they may be. We have a sense of them, but we don't need to know. Because as you look up at the starry night sky and you marvel at the creation that God has made. And if you look at the mag magnificent beauty of the earth, if you ever come to Mauritius. What God has made is absolutely astounding. What man has made is absolutely abominable. But what God has made in that island is astounding. When you look at the beauty of creation, can you just begin to imagine the magnificent rewards, the beauty of those rewards, the, un, the indescribable nature of those rewards that we will enjoy for all eternity if we are faithful. And suffering loss, those words are described as what we call missing out. Christian, God doesn't want you to miss out. I trust God has spoken to your heart this morning. You see, if God is our master, verse 13 tells us, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's the verse we know. There's the context. You can't do this. Love what the world loves. Do the least. And that's all you want to do. Not even doing that much, sadly. Oftentimes. We can't live that way and expect much from God. Because you can't love God and mammon. You see, if we love God then we'll use what he has given us with passion, with zeal, with commitment for the work of God, more than what the world has a passion for, amen, and we'll invest it in eternity, and one day we will step into those everlasting habitations and we will see the fruit of our labours for the glory of Christ. But listen carefully. If we waste what God has given us, and ultimately what it comes down to, we love money and what it can buy us. If that's where we live as Christians, then one day we'll lose it all. We can take nothing with us and we will stand friendless at the gates of heaven. That's not God's plan for you, Christian. That's not God's plan for me. Let us invest in eternity. Let's pray. And pastor will come. Lord, we thank you for the challenge you gave to the disciples. And Lord, we think about how this truth penetrated their hearts. 
and led them to live their lives a living sacrifice. Though they weren't perfect, Lord, far from it. But Lord, you work through them. And Lord, we marvel at the fact that you want to do the same through us. Help us, dear God, to obey your word. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes upon eternity. And Lord, to do what pleases you, according to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.